Gems of Youth Work, Sharing Precious Practices. Welcome to Gems of Youth Work, Sharing Precious Practices. I'm your host, Markus Fretscher. And today we have with us Hilse Jeche from Latvia. She's a freelance trainer, movement educator, and body worker. And she's here to talk to us about her lessons learned in employing empathy and mindfulness, both as a content and as an approach in youth work. Good morning, Ilse. Thank you for joining our podcast. Good morning, Marcus. <laughs> Hi there. Well, first of all, how would you like our listeners to think of you as they listen to your voice? How would you describe yourself, either physically or in other terms? But what, what image could our listeners have in mind when they hear you? Aha, uh -huh. <laughs> complicated <laughs> question. But uh, what I could say from me is uh, I've been in training world over 20 years, uh, working um, both uh, here in Latvia and also internationally. And uh, for the last 15, I've been also into uh, movement education and body work. So I'm joining these two careers some, uh, somehow together, sometimes in, in my trainings and projects, and sometimes I do them separately, uh, doing training work on, on very specific subjects of sustainability or um, community building, and then uh, yeah, the movement education and bodywork practice uh, on its own. But sometimes these topics join, and I make a training course on uh, mindfulness or presence and so on, where a lot of uh, movement and uh, bodywork techniques and methods are kind of also integrated. Mm -hmm. And what is your motivation to be in youth work? What, what is your passion behind and behind bringing these topics into youth work? Yeah, I've been, I've been thinking about this and, and I think one of the reasons is that I've been always uh, fascinated by the new things or trends or I've been there before trends sometimes as well. And um, I think young people are super receptive to a lot of new things and, and I'm fascinated by innovation. I'm fascinated about the new ways of thinking and being. And I think working with young people makes... Um, Yeah, make me practice things that are not necessarily always accepted in, in a larger society. Um, and to be honest, I, I think it also energizes me. So it makes uh, myself stay young as well uh, in my mind and uh, yeah, able to kind of um, adjust to the things that are coming. Yeah, I think this is what young people uh, a lot of times have. And because I don't have kids myself, I think it's also a perfect way to keep myself updated of what's happening in, in, uh, in all the generations, so to say. <laughs> and in this, as last thing in this part of getting to know you, you're connecting from where exactly? Because you're at home now, right? Yes, I'm living in, in Liepaja, which is a seaside town uh, in Latvia. Right. And uh, you also enjoy nature a lot, no? as you told me. Yeah, pretty much. A beach and a lake and forests and everything else. This is a big part of uh, why I choose to live in, in certain places. Yeah, that's right. Getting to know the case. So, Ilse, you mentioned some terms such as empathy, compassion, body work. What, what do you mean by that? Or what should we think about this? And how is it used in the in the frame of youth work? 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, there are different methods that uh, I'm adapting in the youth work or, or so to say, trainings. And uh, mindfulness is, is one concept that's, that I'm trying to implement throughout the trainings, whatever I'm doing. And that's basically observation and, um, and reflection. I would say that actually non-formal education um, is even based on mindfulness because of the, all the principles of learning by doing and learning to be and learning to be with others and so on. Um, these are basically um, mindfulness principles that you are observing what's happening and also you're acting upon uh, the reflection that you're having. So I had this insight this morning that actually mindfulness mm. is very much linked to the non-formal education as such. But um, often we indulge only the mind as a thinking process in, in the learning and uh, my approach also uh, introducing body work and introducing much more movement is inviting body into experience. And that might be also feeling and observing what's happening within you when you are experiencing certain situations or where you're uh, listening to somebody else telling a story. And that leads to the empathy um, concept. Um, and Daniel Goldman, which is a psychologist, uh, um, he has put out there three groups or, or three kinds of empathy. And one is cognitive empathy when we're kind of hearing a story of somebody like let's say in living library and we can kind of empathize and, and um, think how it would be to be another being and experience certain life conditions and, and experiences. And then there's this emotional empathy where actually we can experience through our bodies and through our own kind of uh, even physical sensations because emotions often are physical. Um, so we can experience or we can imagine how it would be, uh, again, uh, to live in somebody else's shoes. And then there's this compassionate empathy, which, which I think is very much, um, yeah, which I feel passionate about because it includes also action. So it doesn't mean only thinking how the other, so it doesn't include only this cognitive part or emotional part, but it includes also action. So as a, as a kind of a part of this experiential learning where we reflect on the experiences we've had and we learn from that and we act upon that. So that would be, um, yeah, kind of empathy in action, this compassionate empathy. So these are the principles that I try to integrate through various activities uh, in the training courses. There are plenty of them and I could talk about this for hours, but... Uh, yeah, these are the concepts that I'm using, the understanding and awareness that I need to involve mind and also the body and that I need to look for personal experiences in the training courses because that brings people to more feeling. Because if we talk concepts and they cannot relate to their own living experience or, or kind of lived experience, then there's less opportunity for actually internalizing experience or internalizing knowledge which for me as an educator is important that they internalize and they can kind of also later after the course integrate into their lives. So I'm not saying that I'm changing lives in, in the, after the training course. I think we've had a hype that non-formal education is changing lives and transforming the fates of the people. But what I believe we are doing as an educator is we are offering a glimpse of what is possible. And then it depends on participants if they integrate it into their lives or not. And, um, yeah, so this is my, my wishful, hopeful thinking that there are some things that they experience in the course that stays with them uh, and they bring it as a home practice or they notice <laughs> something more in their daily lives and there are certain benefits, of course, coming from mindful living and, and more embodied living. 
And you started talking about it. The the what effects have you seen on participants or on other stakeholders or on the system whatsoever by bringing these concepts into youth work and these methods? You mentioned that it's it's a deeper learning, possibly a more sustainable learning. Anything else you observed about the impacts and benefits of of applying these methods and concepts? Yeah, one effect is really, really simple, and it's slowing down. And something mm -hmm. that uh, I experienced also in the course that Marcus, uh, you were organizing, and I was a trainer uh, for, was this listening course on um, and the benefit and the process that always happens. I think in these courses with the groups, just that they come very restless. There's a lot of going on, and there's inability to stay stay uh, still. Um, not only with their bodies, but also with their minds. It's like, uh, we want this, we want that. And 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 now, and there's this need for st stimulation. And then slowly, day by day, what is observable is that people become slower, kind of. And and how I have noticed that the first insight that I've got that this process is happening actually was um, when, as a part of results for the training course, we had a video to make. And I noticed that... The, because the video was made in the last days of the trainings, the people are super slow. So watching the video from my kind of more fast-paced life, fast-paced uh, daily life, I, I noticed that, yeah, it's, it's a really an impact. And, and now I'm much more conscious about that. And, and I really see that slowing down is one of the things that people, people achieve um, during the course. And that slowness is also very much linked to more compassionate living and, and, uh, more noticing what's going on in yourself and more noticing also about um, more noticing the injustices that are happening in the world as well because we need a kind of a gap in or or we need an empty space in our mind uh, in order to be able to notice and if you don't have it then we we'll just keep running and um, yeah without much of uh, awareness or reflection mm -hmm. or further smart action. We might be acting, but we might be acting also from this kind of restless, uh, restlessness or restless mindset that's not often uh, bringing the best results. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you have any memory or do you remember any, any projects, events where you applied it that you were especially proud of or that had unexpected results? I think the most unexpected results are with the groups that are not expecting to experience some of these empathy mm -hmm. and, and mindfulness uh, activities uh, that have not been exposed to, to those yeah, concepts and to those practices before. I think that's the breakthrough that I see the most. And um, I think it's gratifying also for, for me as a trainer because there's a lot of resistance sometimes at the beginning mm -hmm. because it's a scary place also to be uh, kind of uh, much more present to yourself and, and to the rest of the world. It's scary for some because we don't really know what, what can open up if we are kind of vulnerable to the much more present moment. And, um, and there are, of course, disclaimers that I also want to say that not you know you cannot force mindfulness activities for everyone. And uh, it, they're not made for everyone, especially uh, thinking of the neurodiversity that we have in a training room. But gentle introduction and kind of welcoming people to try certain things are, yeah, can be very mind-blowing for some. And I would say, yeah, not specific example per se, but um, mm -hmm. for those groups that are more resisting that, I mean, it's in life. No? The more something that you resist is also something that you need sometimes, not always, but um, 
yeah, that, that's what I noticed. It's, it's very beautiful to kind of uh, see that opening in participants. And it's not the aim of the training course for mm-hmm. them to open or cry or do whatever, but it's really nice to observe that, that they have actually stopped and looked and have had some insights that could be beneficial for their future life, let's say. It's very beautiful and kind of very touching for me as a as an educator. Mm-hmm. And um, you mentioned before that it's been quite a hype for a while as well. What would you say are maybe also misconceptions about it or what it is not? In non-formal education, mindfulness trainings, well-being trainings, it, they're becoming more popular. And I think it's a good trend, but it's like... A, Thing with all the trends, what becomes popular sometimes is losing the essence as well. But mm. I mean, we can argue what is the right essence also for, for years to come. And um, there are many, many, many discussions also in, in the Buddhist communities, in, in all the spiritual communities, and in the psychology communities, which are also researching Buddhism and, and kind of mindfulness as such. Um, what I would say for me, uh, mindfulness as a... As a kind of a clean concept doesn't really work without the appropriate action because mm-hmm. we can live in a moment and we can kind of focus on, we can learn to focus on things and, and that's like concentrate on things because there's a part in a mindfulness meditation that is concentration training where you concentrate on your breath or on the tree or anything else that's kind of uh, helping your mind to focus. But for me, because I'm coming also from the social activism um, background um mindfulness meditation is not worthy if it doesn't also include action and um action towards the community action towards how you're impacting the the world because like from the buddhism tradition at least um mindfulness has the meaning of insight so it means also recognizing the relationship that you're having with yourself relationship that you're having with the outer world and the impact that you're having and doesn't mean feeling guilty that we are polluting the earth and, and uh, yeah, we are contributing to the system that's actually very destructive, but really analyzing and seeing the impact, acknowledging that and then seeing alternatives uh, for, I don't know, everyday habits or choices that could benefit yourself, uh, your neighbor, uh, people that are you are impacting indirectly with, I don't know, consumer products that you're buying or um yeah, any action that you're having and then making a choice. I mean, I think mindfulness, mindfulness is very much connected also of um, a decision to go and vote. Mm. Yeah, it's a political, political um, <laughs> kind of uh, side effect should be also part of a mindfulness meditation. It's not uh, being passive and just appreciating the tree, but it's also taking action and, and seeing how you can protect that tree. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you've been employing this for quite some years. I mean, you've been around in in youth work for quite some years. Have you observed some trends or changes in your groups of participants since it's been going on for quite a while? Maybe effects of the pandemic, for instance, you know, how people have different needs or react differently to the methods, etc. Is it needed more than ever? Have you seen any changes, trends whatsoever over the last years? Hmm. I think so, yes. Uh, there has been a lot of more conversation about the trauma-informed practices, for instance. Mm-hmm. And I think somehow pandemic and the war uh, has shown another side of the human beings that was always there, the vulnerability. 
but somehow we didn't put a lot of focus on that. So I think it's very, very valuable to be working on that now. And also understanding that diversity of the people and traumas that we have in a room and uh, offering them uh, um, possibility to uh, learn, but to learn in a ways that, that is, yeah, that's more inclusive and kind of more empathic to different needs. So I think it definitely has an effect and, and it, it's, I, I mean, the growing trend of including body work and movement in a lot of non-formal education courses is, is also showing that it's wor- something is working and, and people are switching to more kind of those uh, body embracing practices. So I think that that will mm-hmm. be definitely the future also of uh, where we're going to focus, which, you know, gives us a place for, for abuse, abuse ways of, um, you know, taking practices and putting them, you know, kind of realizing them in a ways that are not necessarily supporting the practice or supporting participants. Mm-hmm. But I think a lot of people are, are, are using it. But I could recall like when kind of psychology, psychological tools uh, got uh, somehow uh, thrown in non-formal education. And I heard a lot of methods being used uh, where trainers are not qualified to and mm-hmm. they're really digging deep into the traumas of the people, uh, which is not okay because there's not agreement for a person to come to the training and, and have a treatment. Um, so it's not very fair, neither for a participant and it's not adapt in, like kind of adequate for the training certification. But I, what I see and what I hope also to, to um, find more is this yeah, empathic approach that uh, you give, you, you kind of invite people to experience, but you don't force because it can trigger things and it can be, you know, uh, too much for some because you don't know the story of the people that are in the room. So that's my hope. I don't know. I, I, mm. I hear a lot of stories that it's, there's a lot of trainers kind of have experienced very, very deep uh, transformational kind of things through methods. And then they copy and paste in, in, in other mm. trainings. And, and sometimes, sometimes it goes well, and sometimes it goes very traumatic. And, um, one thing that we don't work like, like I have uh, failed sometimes in organizing in these courses is open spaces because somehow mm-hmm. people tend to go to very dark places. It's like we need to clean, we need to purify, we need to like recover from a childhood mm-hmm. traumas. That's the activities sometimes that they propose, which which are not really adequate for the for the training settings. Yeah, because often neither these participant facilitators are are. Um, kind of certified to do that, neither the training is a space where, you know, such openings should happen, possibly. They will happen naturally, but I don't think we need to force that. Transfer service. You you already started talking about what to be careful with and what is appropriate what not? So if a youth worker or trainer or youth work manager hears this podcast and gets inspired and thinks, I want to bring in more mindfulness, empathy, maybe movement work into my youth work, what are good first steps without being the super guru specialist? But what are recommended first steps, would you say, if you want to bring this into your youth work practice? Mm-hmm. I think, first of all, is a practice, self-practice. And this is something I think mm-hmm. that a lot of people skip. And one thing is maybe that we don't like a time and we want to do everything on, on, the, on the spot. 
Um, I'm not like saying that having tutorials on YouTube and da, 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 is a bad thing. I think it's great. It gives access to the information. But what I notice also that there are a lot of uh, people willing to try and experiment with different methods when they read upon them or just see them on YouTube. And um, I somehow, yeah, I think that the integrity of the trainer is also not to um, practice on a group something that they have seen on the video or have read upon but rather that they have had a personal experience and maybe a year's of personal experience. And now I know it sounds very kind of like, wow, I need to have an investment before I, before I, I uh, give it to the groups. But I also think that as the educators or trainers, we are not really uh, teaching people by what we are uh, telling them, but who we are. And uh, not to say that you have to be a perfect present person for that, but I think it's, it really shows if you have this embodied experience in, in yourself when you are giving a method. And what I what I've heard also from people that it's actually <laughs> quite triggering and and annoying and kind of visible if you are giving a method that you have no idea about, or if you want to bring people to the places that you haven't been yourself. And uh, and again, uh, emphasizing that you don't have to be non-angry, whatever, floating trainer and so on. This is not about that, but I think it's about like being aware of a method and having it as an embodied experience and also just knowing some complications or side effects that can be coming from that. And um, meaning also uh, understanding that there are different learners in the room and you shouldn't ask everyone to close their eyes because you are bringing people out of their their zone of safety sometimes so this is one thing or i've experienced also a trainer who uh said okay just lay down on the floor um take a take another person and massage each other i mean there are a lot of the things to take into account right me as a body worker i, I was i was in a deep shock and thinking like wow this is no no because it's a lot about the boundaries. It's a lot about uh, consensus. It's about like um, also just being clear to what experience you invite people. So one thing, uh, a tip also for the trainers who have had this personal experience and, and uh, who want to give it more to the group is um, actually telling where you will be leading participants to. Mm -hmm. And I know a lot of experiential trainers are saying, well, but it loses this learning part where you're actually like having this unexpected moment. Exactly. Like, wow, I yeah, didn't moment know of that. Surprise. Exactly. Uh -huh. yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think it's also like for me as a learner who's, who's quite uh, freedom seeking and who also uh, takes care that, you know, I feel safe in, in the environment. Uh, for me, it's very liberating that actually I have clear rules and clear uh, understanding of what's going to happen. That, okay, this is, will be a moment where we, will we might be closing the eyes and, um, you know, the activity is done with the purpose of this and that. Yeah, So to have a clear um, understanding why we are doing what and uh, what yeah what are the trigger warnings maybe you know what mm -hmm. can come up not not to put people that it can you know like trigger some memories and da 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 but rather really to kind of say that you are free to um not experience that but go out and watch or just be with yourself and, and so on so give people freedom to participate and give people also the clarity of what's going to happen because it's not for everyone. And as a trainers, even if we've had wonderful experiences with mindfulness and meditations and so on, I think it's important not to force it upon everyone. And I think this is 
like I told you, it's important to have a embodied practice. But then again, I also know how it is to have discovered the practice. And, and then you want to, you're like a prophet walking on earth. You want to convince everyone that it's the greatest thing that, you know, it has changed your life. And and uh, I know from cycles in my life that I, I, I've been this as well. And I've been, <laughs> I've been a profiting and then saying it, but... I also know that this cycle passes and there's some kind of integration and uh, kind of this high, this is the answer to all life questions. Uh, and it, it disappears and, and something new comes and, and so on. But um, yeah, we have to be aware also of, of, um, of not forcing upon certain truths, I think, the participants, mm-hmm. especially when it comes to such a personal matters as, as being mindful to what's happening in your life and, and being being present to what's happening in your life because it can happen also, you know, that there's a participant who has experienced the death of a closed one recently and being present is actually a very scary place. And it's not the place in a training course to be so much present. Yeah, because then you would cry and, and not be able to do anything else. And, and sometimes it's good to have a kind of this uh, um, mind taken by some other information or thoughts. So I'm in a way contradicting of what I said in the beginning, but I think it's just mm-hmm. very, very meaningful for for any trainer who are in working with the embodiment and mindfulness to be aware uh, that you're not forcing what you think is right and truth and being okay that people take the minimum out of your training and not. Mm-hmm. And this is something that I struggle with myself because I want this, this uh, you know, quick change. Also working for animal welfare and or environmental justice, I want quick results. I want results in my lifetime and I want results also within a training, but it's, this is just, uh, yeah, it's, it's not how things are. And I think allowing people to be is actually bringing much more results and much more peace of mind for me and, you know, not to force myself to be kind of uh, super effective all the time. That, that brings me to a maybe a bit provocative question. Is I really understand what you're saying there? And how would you justify this to a donor who wants quantitative evidence on the impact of what you're doing? Yeah, in my experience also, I'm evaluating projects and I see a lot of these personal development trainings um, um, being asked money for. And um, I see a lot of these uh, culprits and, and um, I also, I kind of understand what could be the benefit, but it's not often written. And I would invite then really people to go into their research and, and there's a lot of research out there and, um, and write it, you know, and, and see, see uh, yeah, how you can integrate that um, yeah, that these practices can be beneficial. I mean, one thing also that we work with listening uh, in a listening course, because this is also a topic, how do you actually link listening to the social change, right? But there's a lot of research that's done around loneliness and, and um, loneliness is very much linked to um, you not being able to be uh, kind of witnessed, seen, uh, heard, and so on. So, yeah, these are kind of, um, you, you need to look for, for related um, causes and consequences of uh, uh, what, um, yeah, yeah, what certain areas are, are kind of, somehow they are linked um, and justify them. But there's a lot of research um, happening. And, and then again, yeah, I think it's, I was just reading uh, recently a book how, how what we think about psychology is wrong and, and uh, 
there's a lot of research about the educational activities, how we think, um, how we think we are doing things, and how we have uh, experienced them ourselves are not always the most effective ways. And I think having this critical approach is this the way that actually is most in, yeah, is this method actually makes does this method makes an impact or is it the most um, effective way I am working is very important. Like, I mean, recently with the, with the, um, I didn't know that, for instance, with also people, at a, young people in risk groups, that it's not very efficient to bring them together in summer camps or kind of, you know, these, these uh, get together events, but it's much more effective to be uh, working with them one by one. Because that's the way you avoid actually role modeling, which is happening when they're mm -hmm. going together and uh, they are role modeling to each other and actually bringing themselves down. And there's a long-term research on that this is very ineffective. So after these camps, they get in more trouble just because they have been influenced by each other, not in the best way. So it's the best way to work one-on-one -on -one with mm -hmm. these young people and actually you know, the, do the mentoring and, and show them different ways of being. And I think there's a lot, a lot of the things as a non-formal education trainers, we might not be doing, you know, in a way that's the most effective and sometimes even harming. And we need to ask these questions. Why do, why do we do certain things and, and um, how can we be different? And I think also having gone to a lot of seminars where people spend time on the computers and not really being present in, into what speakers are saying, then we as an organizers need to ask is it worth it to have this event if this is happening and how we can make these events so that people are actually not in front of their screens, but are really engaged and uh, you're not, you know, wasting planet, flying people to the event where nobody's present and nobody's participating. And I think we need to ask that and something very uncomfortable, but I believe also these methods that, that you know, we've been talking about today are also helpful in, in bringing people here and bringing people into the yeah, personal stories of, uh, of empathizing with the target group or empathizing and connecting to the cause that we are, we are trying, to, um, yeah, to, trying to fight for or protect. These are very essential things. I think we can even, we can even um, integrate in, a, in a bigger conferences because it's, I don't see the point continuing work when nobody's present and nobody's really interested or engaged and, Mm -hmm. I think we should be looking at the trainings as uh, as an opportunity to engage people and get them present and get them mindful of themselves and the group and also what's happening in the in the bigger, wider picture in the world. And would you say, because I'm thinking again about people who might want to start using these practices, that empathy, mindfulness, etc. Would you see this as content? of youth work, for instance, as topic of a youth exchange training course, or is it more like an approach, uh, something of how to do it that comes on top of a topic? I think it's both because mm -hmm. we are at the beginning of the conversation about that. And I think that can be, and that is already in, in many courses, many exchanges as a topic, just as a climate change. But I think also, and, and I read an article a few years ago about the climate changes as a way of, you know, parenting and just, just, you know, being in everyday life. And I think this is how we, these are the guiding principles that should be there even without directly targeted method. 
meaning that we think about environmental awareness, we think about the uh, mindfulness presence of the people throughout all the methods that we are using. So I believe, yes, it's okay to have specific, um, specific courses on that. But then again, we really need to think how we integrate all these things. And like recently in, in, uh, in a meeting, we also thought about, okay, how do we maybe make a silent room in a, in a training place, you know, for people to kind of reflect and, and be there by themselves and so on. And how do we make conversational corners? So to really adapt to this neurodivergent, uh, that <coughs> neurodiverse uh, groups and also how do, how do we enhance the learning experience so it's more effective. Knowing that we cannot control everything, but at least we can um, both role model, different ways of, of teaching, being, educating, and, and also offer people yeah, space to, to learn differently. But definitely, yeah, these should be the principles that are kind of guiding or uh, preparation of the methods and running of the methods that we always include uh, some elements of that in everything we do. As you were talking, I was also wondering about the role of, of actually of context and setting. And this reminded me that in the very beginning, you also mentioned nature, actually. So how do you work with this setting or what, what power does the setting of nature or the integration of nature into youth work have? What are your experiences with that? Hmm. I think I would like to, to answer to the first question or statement that you uh, talked that you mentioned about the place. And I think it's, it's very valid, actually, a question because we cannot be uh, mindful or, or empathic in, in some of the spaces. And actually, choosing a space is very, very essential part of the uh, learning or about the, you know, you cannot be necessarily mm -hmm. very comfortable in, in learning if, if the place is not uh, adjusted to uh, your needs. I mean, you need to think of the lamps or carpets or ability to move or ability to lay down or have comfortable chairs. This is also part of learning. And I think when you asked about whether this should be a guiding principle throughout the trainings, I think this is also something that we need to take into account, a space that we choose for learning because some of the, I think spaces are kind of designed for people to be distracted or, or to be very formal or, um, yeah, or somehow, um, I mean, we talk about circling non-formal education, right? This is also what I've noticed as a, as a big change when people are actually less comfortable to scroll on their phones or be on their computers when they're sitting in a circle because they're visible and, and uh, they kind of uh, feel part of the group themselves and, and then there are different methods, of course, that, that you can um, involve, um, which includes noticing others in a circle and um, just, yeah, having a conversation on, on, on how we feel or exercising together and so on. But going back to your uh, question on nature, yes, uh, nature has been a big part of the courses also because I, I'm, um, I feel that we need to bring people into the nature and natural environment because coming from an environmental educational background and having a wish for people to protect it, we need to remind the importance of it. And also, I believe that we can protect and we are willing to protect only what we know and what we love. And this is something, <laughs> a love that needs to be fostered, I think, uh, with the young people. Somehow we have, um, we are switching to this more um, biophobic approach where we are more into technologies and, and less kind of into the natural elements or appreciate appreciating them less at least so nature can be a, a, a good um, space for people to reconnect 
But I think uh, one thing that I was thinking is um, how we are looking for beauty and a connection and entertainment in uh, a lot of things these days and, and we are consuming in order to get them. But then with mindfulness and being in a nature, we kind of get back to, to this feeling that a lot of things can be entertaining. I mean, the ant crossing the grass can be entertaining. These small things that the clouds moving in the sky, um, the smell of the flower. I mean, these are kind of, they sound like a very hippie things. But then again, <laughs> if you really get into that, uh, wow, uh, appreciation of the nature, I think it, it switches your mind off of, um, or switches your your willingness to consume and more to experience. And I think that experience can be really um, yeah, explored in a natural setting. And, and this is a feedback that often we get when we give people, I don't know, several hours of a solo walk in the nature, a threshold, threshold walk where they have a certain question or medicine walk where they also are kind of looking for as symbols in a nature that are kind of um, reflecting their own lives, they always come much more um, kind of surprised of what are different elements of nature and how they interact. And uh, like the, the last course in Austria, oh, most of the people were actually talking about bambies and, and uh, deers. And it was like, uh, wow, <laughs> you know, it was something that they don't experience in their daily lives. And often they don't experience in their daily lives because they don't look or they don't have space for looking for that. And it's something for me as, as a, uh, also, uh, yeah, as a social change maker, very important to bring people to these this basic uh, joys of being in nature. Something that we talked also, Marcus, with you uh, beyond the, um, beyond this uh, podcast on uh, yeah, how nature can be soothing and really uh, energizing at the same time. So I think these are these are very very important elements also to consider. And I think in in any any conference or any educational activity, um, nature can be integrated. We don't need to go to the national park, but we can go to the park and and uh, you know so see the smallest details that are available there, or focus on the tree, or focus on anything. There's a lot of research on on the benefit of nature, especially for young people age 16 to 24. Um, it really like even watching wildlife programs are benefiting them uh, in ways that are uplifting the mood and kind of uh, fostering that sense of belonging and the feelings of awe and amazement and everything else. So if watching wildlife series themselves are already making a huge impact on their mood and, and um, yeah, general happiness levels, then you can imagine what being in a nature already brings. So um, I think... This is research that is, uh, yeah, that is good to be taken into account when organizing activities because it can actually really influence this uh, regulation of nervous systems for young people, right? I mean, we need to understand that we are co-regulating with other human beings and sometimes this co-regulation goes in, in a way that we are getting a, <laughs> a worse food. And um, when we are going into the nature, then this co-regulation happens as well which means that we are having much more potential of, you know, uh, emotional regulation if we are in a kind of a dark, dark, <laughs> dark mode, then, um, yeah, there's uh, more possibilities for us to, to have a bit of brighter perspectives. Um, not to talk about like positive psychology, that everything needs to be fine, but we need to acknowledge as an educators that nature is a very powerful and potent tool 
to use for just yeah, regulating nervous system. Something that I like to do also at the end of the training course days is uh, send people into the nature and really use that. And, and uh, often the training programs are so, so intense uh, and we think we want to get the most of meeting everyone that we forget that actually in day-to-day -day activities, in order to be able and to be more present uh, to participate in activities, we need that space for ourselves. And uh, if we have that space for ourselves in the nature, it's an extra benefit. So I do hope that also uh, we will use that yeah, element more and it will not be kind of a strange thing to get out of the rooms and just be in a circle, but also look around uh, what's there and, and uh, seek ways to connect to, to the... Yeah the environment. Final message. So I, I asked you about what you observed as trends and changes in the last years. But now let's go to the future and not look back. What is actually your forecast and maybe even your wish? for the future of youth work mm. from your perspective and from the practices you use, so starting from your approach. Something that I want to start probably is a worry, actually. And the, the, the pattern that I have observed in the last year is that somehow uh, the youth workers are, or youth educators are switching from the youth educator role to the youth entertainer role, <laughs> which I hope, uh, yeah, we will, we will take a serious look and, and see um, yeah, how we are contributing to this uh, le learning for, for young people um, while just being there uh, for young people to consume instead of participate. So that's kind of my worry, what I've seen as a trend of um, yeah, being entertaining, being fun, uh, and often not willing to step into the places that are sometimes uncomfortable or that make people not like you, because that's also part of educational process. Um, not something that you force, but something that happens naturally. If you bring people to the places of learning, that's not comfortable. So yeah, as a side effect, you are not liked for a day or two or three or a week or your whole training. But that at some point, um, <laughs> there's this educational benefit anyway. So I think... Um, yeah, not being liked is something, an, an introspection that we need to look uh, upon and, and work in the therapy or supervision or wherever we are. But I think as an educator, this is, this is very important. And um, it's important also for young people yeah, because we are uh, teaching them participation instead of consumption and instead of kind of uh, entertaining them. We ask them to be responsible and participatory citizens of the world through, through our, our trainings. So that's my worry, and I, I hope it will not be, it will not come true and mainstream. And my my forecast, uh, my forecast is definitely that I will, yeah, I think I will see a lot of uh, these mindfulness and and um, meditative activities integrated into the training courses. And I also think there's going to be a lot of conversations about the climate anxiety and and a lot about the worries existential worries for young people that will come in the training rooms um, because it's not, you know, we're not talking about the climate change and the war itself, but we're also talking about the financial burden that young people are experiencing or loneliness levels that are also raising because of this um, living in a virtual world 
which is great and connected, but it's also very disconnected. So we will need to, yeah, to be looking for ways to approach young people safely, but then to bring them back to this uh, kind of basic values of connection and presence and, and uh, yeah, uh, reminding them of, of best kind of essential things would be, would become more challenging, I think. But uh, I also have my hope that um, more and more trauma-informed practices uh, become uh, popular, that educators will be also more um, more open to different kind of learnings. I mean, now, even when I started my training work, so training work over 20 years, we were taught that, you know, there's this cognitive learner, there's a learner who uh, learns by reading or by hearing, now this myth is, is already over and we need to look at the broader kind of ways uh, of how we learn and not stick to the, some kind of old, uh, old-fashioned um, yeah, kind of research that's, that's not relevant. And that hasn't been relevant, but there's a new research coming. So I really do hope that, that yeah, we will, we will take a look at more evidence-based practices and, and uh, implement, implement some, of the, some of that in our training rooms and benefit yeah, our learners more. Thank you so much, Ilze. It was really a pleasure having you so on much. this podcast. <laughs> and uh, yeah, also thank you. Thank you for all your work. I've had a chance to see it firsthand and see the very positive impact you have on young people. So thanks for this and keep it up. Thank you, Marcus. This has been today's episode of Gems of Youth Work, Sharing Precious Practices. We've had with us Ilse Jeche, a freelance trainer, movement educator, and body worker from Latvia. And she has shared with us her lessons learned of employing empathy and mindfulness, both as a method approach and also as content in youth work. Some of the things she underlined have been, for example, that Empathy and compassion can not stop there, but need to be followed up by action. That uh, it's important that as youth worker, trainer, educator, bringing in empathy and mindfulness into youth work, it's important to practice what we preach and to have gone through it and to live it ourselves. So the authenticity, also the relevance of the setting and the context. For instance, the power of nature, but also considerations to have for a potential venue, spaces, for instance, to also be able to lie down and how generally everything should be fit with this effect of slowing down and what are these benefits of slowing down and becoming more aware, more present, more conscious of what's happening with oneself and the others and the bigger context in the moment. We hope to welcome you again as listeners on our future episodes of Gems of Youth Work. Gems of Youth Work is funded by the Erasmus Plus program of the European Commission with the support of the Estonian National Agency.